0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Each year, the first Sunday that takes us into the new year, we we pause from our normal sermon series and take a Sunday to look at some specific that as a church, we can carry on our hearts into the new year. The the new year, as Josh reminded us earlier, is often considered a time to the time, the the best time to make adjustments. It has the sense of entering into a new season. And so it's a wonderful time to make adjustments to our way of living in order to focus ourselves. I think Josh used the word reorient. Ourselves, So to focus ourselves on what we think is really important. And so we often make health commitments or resolutions you hear, but we make commitments. We make health commitments about exercise and diet and, and financial commitments about how we should budget and spend our money and time commitments about how we can best utilize our, our time. Well, church, as your pastor who is called to be concerned about your health and your commitments. I have one thing I think I would love to present before you or put before you that I think could actually drastically change the way you live life this new year. It could change your relationships. It could, it could change your home, your relationship with your, your wife, your spouse, your, 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 your husband, your, your children. It could change relationships in the workplace. It could change relationships in the church. One thing I want to put before you, one commitment that I would love to ask you. Would you consider the commitment, among all your other commitments, to never stop your Christmas celebration? Would you consider the commitment to never stop your Christmas celebration? And I, and I, 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 it may sound weird. That may sound like I'm not used to that. What are you saying? That's weird. I've already taken down my lights. That's impossible. Or my my light bill won't be able to handle that, and my electricity bill can't handle that. No, I. I I really think it is something that is possible for us. And actually, I feel like as Christians, I think as Christians, we are actually called to that commitment. You go through our city, you, you go to Sam's, you go to Walmart, you go to HB, you go to our stores. And immediately Christmas is already out of the stores. You walk in and it's already Valentine's Day stuff. They're looking ahead to February. If we're not careful, we do the exact same thing. We spend December looking towards Christmas. This, this, we, we're hearing about it's all about Christ, it's all about Him. And then we're saying, yes, we're going to sing about Him, we're going to do Advent, we're going to intentionally pursue having Bible studies where we're just focusing on Christ coming and what that means for us. And then December 24th and 25th are gone, and we're moving on as well. We begin to put away all of our Christmas things, and in some ways, we can do that in our hearts too. I used to get so sad when Christmas was done because I think I used to do that. I used to sort of just pack up Christmas in my heart and just push it aside. Well, if Christmas is just decorations, if Christmas is just lights, then okay, that's what's going to happen. But for the Christian, Christmas is not that, is it? It's not just the lights. It's not just the presents. It's not just the decorations. So when those things go away, it truly can still be Christmas. Because the main thing of Christmas remains. Christ is still our savior. Christ has still come. He is still ours and we are still his. And so in light of that, I do think it is possible as a church and as Christians to live as if every day is still Christmas. As if it is always Christmas. You, you just heard in our children's time before the sermon about Ebenezer Scrooge and how by the time Christmas came, he had changed. It changed the way he lived. He woke up Christmas morning with a glad and thankful heart. He was no longer grumpy. The ba humbug Scrooge was no longer there. Instead, he was greeting everyone with joy. People he didn't help before because of his selfish pride, now he Humbly considers them and helps them. Where he was angry and greedy before, now he's joyful and generous. Where he was uncaring and hateful, now he's kind and loving. That sounds a lot like how we live during Christmas time. We just, we do a bit more giving, a bit more gathering, a bit more wanting to be in one another's lives. We bear with one another just a little bit more. In humility, we consider others just a little bit more. We pursue being with others just a little bit more. We pursue being cheerful givers more than we normally would as we purposefully and intentionally fix our hearts and minds on the first Christmas when the most cheerful of givers, God himself, gave us the greatest gift, Christ his Son. And Christmas, I think, I believe this, As the church celebrates Christmas in this way, in this way, where Christ is the main thing, shining brightly. I think it is this wonderful, beautiful explosion of light, of the light of Christ in a darkened world. And that is not supposed to stop. That is not supposed to stop for us. You always hear about that, the Christmas letdown afterwards. But I think maybe we're let down because maybe we're clinging to the wrong things. Christ is still there, gloriously reigning, still your savior. So today, today, I just want to, I'm a simple guy. Church, you know that. If you've been here, you know that. I'm a simple, simple guy. And I just wanna give, in, in one sense, a simple call that what if as a church, we lived as if it was always Christmas? What if as a church we kept clinging to Christ? We kept intentionally pursuing one another. We kept intentionally pursuing study of Christ, knowing Christ, having Advent all year long. What if we kept moving towards one another sacrificially and generously and joyfully? Oh, church, I think we would continue to shine brightly in a darkened world. So so I want us to see, we're going to be in Philippians And we're sort of looking at an overview. Normally, we take one passage and we just walk through detail in that one passage. We will start in one main passage today. But then we're going to see four four themes or things in the letter to the Philippian church that I think Paul is encouraging the church to live this very way. To live as if it's always Christmas. To always live in light of Christ. To keep celebrating Christ joyfully and generously. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to start in chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 as our key passage and then see four key themes out of that that I think we, I would love for us, by the grace of God, to carry into the new year. So with that, follow along with me out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That passage, this passage is the middle of the letter to the Philippian church. Think think of it as the very core, as like if you're picturing the solar system, it's the sun And everything before it, everything around it before and after is connected to that passage at its core. Everything flows out of this. So all of the life instruction that Paul is going to give, everything that Paul models to this church before and after those verses in chapter 2 is connected to that, 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 that passage. It finds life flowing out of that very passage that we just read. It is the core of the Christian life. That's why I love I love the way the Lord has pieced even together his word, that you have this letter and it's filled with things to do and ways to live and all this, but at the very center of it is gospel. At its very heart is just look to Jesus. Look at your Savior. Look at him. That's the word of God. That's what it does over and over again. It gives us imperatives. It gives us ways to live and models and instruction. But it says at its core, where do you live that out? How do you live that out? Look to Jesus. Look to your Savior. That is the core of the Christian life. Paul points these Christians and us to that core. These verses, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, are just straight gospel. They are good news, the wonderful Good news of Christ's humbly obedient life, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. Paul tells in a sense of that very first Christmas. You see, maybe follow along with my mind there. He's he's pointing them to the very first Christmas live in light of the very first Christmas here. He's pointing them to this. When when Christ Jesus, God the Son, humbly and willingly came and took on human flesh in the incarnation, born in our likeness, taking on our weakness and frailty, the one who rules over all the nations would be born a baby. I saw this quote from a pastor who just tweeted this out earlier this week. I loved it. He said, so many babies have become kings. But no one but one was a king who became a baby. That is our Savior. Oh, my. Oh, my. And we're to never move on from being amazed at that. To keep preaching that to our hearts. That is amazing. And when my heart says, oh, let's move on to something else. That's boring. I get it. You you preach to your heart. No, no heart. You be amazed at that. Many babies have become kings. But there is only one who was a king who became a baby. And then lived this humble servant life. How radical is that? The king would become a servant. Oh. Oh, The one who should be served, served, humbly giving himself for our good and perfect obedience, even to the point the scripture says here, of dying a sacrificial death that we deserved, taking upon himself the wrath of God so that we could have life in God. But he didn't stay dead. He, he in glorious power, he re- was resurrected to new life, and he was exalted. He, he humbled himself. He lowered himself, in a sense, taking this weak human frailty and s- taking the form of a servant, And the Lord exalted him. It's otherworldly to us. The enemy of our souls, Satan himself, at the very beginning, way before Adam, sought to exalt himself and God humbled him. Then Adam comes along and the enemy of our souls then tempts Adam in the same way to exalt himself above even what God says. And what happens, the Lord has humble humanity. And from that point on, all of humanity wrestles with the exact same thing wanting to exalt ourselves, wanting to lift ourselves up. But we see the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, come and take the form of a servant. Take on weak human flesh. Take the form of a baby. And he lives this life of servanthood, but in the end is exalted. So already it's beginning to turn our understanding upside down. If this is at the core of the Christian life, the gospel and everything that means for us, At the core, the gospel shows us how Jesus moves towards undeserving people with unearned love and generosity, willingly and joyfully sacrificing, humbly giving himself for the good of others. And we should first, when we read that, when we read those verses, we should first receive the joy of knowing that Christ has lived that way. Towards us, towards you. If you're a follower of Christ, that is how Christ has lived towards you. He has moved towards the undeserving, He has given an unearned love, He has been incredibly sacrificial and generous towards you. So we're going to receive that. So when we read those verses, we say, Oh, thank you, Lord, that you would do that for me, that you would take the form of a servant for me that you would die the sinner's death for me and that you would live again so that I may live again in you. So we receive that with joy. But then, but then we hear at the beginning of these verses in verse five, this will, we're, we're going to try to put, there's a bunch of verses since we're kind of overviewing Philippians. We're going to try to put these up on the screen. We'll try. I said, you do your best. If there's nothing that gets up there, that's okay. We hear this in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we should first admire Christ as we see him in the gospel. But then the gospel calls us to then aspire to imitate Christ as we see him in the gospel. So and and we never move on from that. We admire We are admirers. We look upon him and we admire him. And then the gospel declares, have this mind among yourselves. So then we move towards aspiring. Lord, make me like you. We sang it. I loved it. I love how we just lingered there for a moment. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. That's the call of the word of God here admire and then aspire to imitate Christ. When, when Paul uses the word have this mind, he uses this word mind, it's the Greek word phroneo. And I, church, you know me, I am not the smartest guy, okay? I am not like A1 super scholar, so I don't put this before you to try to make you think like, oh, think highly of Phil, he's just this really smart guy. No, I just know how to study and just dig in. But I want to put this before you because when I read these things, when I dig these things out of the Word, it's like it explodes within me that, oh my goodness, Lord, how amazing you are that you would choose your Word that is so detailed and so uh, descriptive that it captures our hearts in beautiful ways. And so that, I just, I'm a simple guy who takes joy in that. I want you to take joy in that. So that's why I put this before you. So. When, when Paul uses that word for mind, it's the Greek word phroneo. He uses it many times in this letter. It sometimes is translated mind, and at other times, it's even translated feel. Mind. And feel. We often think those are opposed to one another. That knowledge somehow transcends how we feel, and for feeling transcends how we what we know. You often see those things debated. But in this letter, the very same word is translated mind, and feel. It's it's this word that acts as sort of this multi-purpose word that speaks of what we know, and how our hearts should then respond to what we know. So it captures what we think and what we feel. Paul is getting at this earlier in chapter two when he says, complete my joy, chapter two, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's saying be unified in having the mind of Christ that affects the, thing, the, the way, not just a knowledge, but affects the way you feel about things. Be of the same mind, having the same love, you see? So think, have this mind of Christ, and think in the way of Christ, and so feel the way Christ feels about things. He's not saying that we have to be the exact same people, that all of a sudden you guys are going to start wearing Sweaters like this, because we wear sweaters. And gla- you've got to get glasses like this. And if you don't like the cowboys, no, I just can't gather with you anymore. Like, I'm not saying that kind of stuff. It's not that. And sometimes you find that, that we feel like we have to all be the exact same. We've got to think this way about certain worldly things. We've got to all be there. No, but what Paul is pointing out is he says, make your central unity what Christ thinks about things and how Christ feels about things. That's what you should be unified on. Make that your mind and your heart. And then he uses that word. So I'm going to get really nerdy with you. He uses that word in the present active imperative tense, meaning it is a command to pursue now. It's an imperative. Have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves that you see in Jesus. Pursue this. It's a command now But because it's this present active imperative, it just never ends. It keeps going and going and going. And so Paul is saying, don't ever stop pursuing thinking and feeling the way Christ thinks and feels. So what he's saying, look at the gospel. See Christ's way of thinking. See Christ's way of living and the way he feels about things. And you do it. And you never stop doing it until the day you die. That's the call of the gospel. Oh my, that's what's at the core of this letter. Have this mind among yourselves and don't ever stop. So, so the Christian is to look at what Christ did. We are to look at who Christ is displayed in the gospel. And then we live in light of that and in likeness of that. We look and see what Christ did. We look and see who he is. And we only see that in the gospel. And then we turn and we say, I'm going to live in light of that, the joy that's found in my Savior. And I'm going to live in likeness of that. That's the call of the scripture here. Though there is only one who could perfectly live this way, Yet we are to seek to follow him as sheep follow a shepherd, right? So much of what Paul uses as well, because sometimes we can live like this. We can say, I'm all about Christ. And then in some ways, we begin to push away others. I'm all about Christ. And we just don't care about one another. I can do me and Christ at home by myself. I can just it's just me and Christ. I'm going to go live evangelistically. I'm going to tell people about Jesus, and yet I, I hate His church. We can be tempted towards that way of living. We probably all know some who have definitely been tempted that way. Just in case we're tempted that way, which we often are, Paul doesn't just leave it as looking to Christ only and then just completely forsaking one another. So much of the way Paul stirs on the church is saying, look to Jesus and then look at how I follow Jesus and follow follow me, look to Jesus and look how others are following Jesus and follow them, do what they're doing, allow one another to stir each other on. Don't look across the way. I was thinking about this earlier. There are so many of you in this church that I look at your life and I say, wow, you stir me on. You st- there, are, there are some of you who just stir me on in the sacrificial love for other people. There are some of you who stir me on in evangelism. There are some of you who stir me on in humility. There are some of you who stir me on in joy. And when I look at you, it's not that I should say, well, that's just them. I'm over here doing my thing. It's not just their personality. Christ has put that person in this church to stir you on towards Christ in the very same way. So as I see you joyfully love and care for others, I don't just say, well, that's just the no. I say, how can I begin to live that way? Because that reminds me of Christ. And that's the way Christ lived. And so we stir one another on. So so much of Paul's stirring and encouraging comes by way of look to Christ and be stirred on by those who are doing it, by who are those who are following Christ. So it's both and. Paul does that in this letter. So much of that is in this letter. We could miss the instruction if we just look for the, the commands only. We miss all the life instruction that is modeled through Paul. Paul actually says in chapter 4, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So we need Christ. We look to Christ. And then we look to Christ even by way of looking at one another's lives. So in light of that, he says, practice these things. Four things that I want to just draw out from the scripture here. I'll try to do it quickly. My goodness. Oh, man. In the new year, I just want to grow better at time management here. But but four things that I think that he puts forward for them to live in light of the first Christmas, in light of Christ, that we are to carry forward throughout the year. First thing, may we live with a loving thankfulness, a loving thankfulness. This Philippian church is not a perfect church where everyone was just easy to love. There are no perfect churches. There is a reason why Paul has filled this letter with instruction because they need it. In chapter 4, he even says we hear that there's actually some sort of division that has risen up between members of the church. And so there is stuff in this church. There are the flourishing and there are the struggling. But yet, Paul models to us the type of Christ-like undeserved love and thankfulness we are to have for one another. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and these these should be up on the screen. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. He knows all of the needed growth in this church. He knows all of the immaturity, all of the struggling that takes place in the church community. And yet that's not where he starts in this letter. And it reveals the starting place of his heart of where he goes first towards people, towards the church, towards one another. He declares his affection for them, first thing. He declares his affection for them. He thanks God for them. He says, when I pray, I thank God for you. And notice he's not he's not just thanking God for some of them as we are often prone to do. The ones that I get along with most. The ones who are sort of in my circle. The ones who are in my season of life. The ones who share my viewpoint on things. No, he says, I thank God for you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. He prays for them always. And when he prays for them, praise for them he thanks god for them and when he thanks god for them he's not just thanking god for some of them it's all of them don't we feel that temptation how when was the last time you thanked god for maybe someone who saw something different on an opinion about societal matters in the church, do you thank God for them? When's the last time you thank God for someone who maybe even pointed out an area of sin? I think every family has, you know, those, I'm I'm the, I'm, I'm the weird one in this church family even. I feel I'm the weird one. And do you thank God for the ones that you just kind of have an awkward time talking to them. I thank God always for you. That's where he starts. He goes on, verses 7, 8, 8, 9. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. So later on, he's going to talk about those ladies who are having division. These ladies who are not getting along. Stirring up some stuff. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. So what is the basis for his praying and thanking God with joy for all of them? It has nothing to do with what they've done. It has nothing to do with them earning it because he likes them more than other people. It has nothing to do with that. It's that they are simply Fellow receivers or partakers, he says, of grace. He looks across the room. He looks down the aisle. He looks in front of him and behind him and he just says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because you're a fellow recipient of grace. You too, the same way I have received the undeserved love and kindness of God. You're a receiver of grace. And if Christ has set his affection upon you, Isn't it right for me then to set my affection upon you? In fact, it would be wrong if Christ has set his affection upon someone in the church, it would be wrong for me to withhold my affection from you. And so Paul says it is right for me to feel this way. And again, that's the word Froneo, It is right for me to think and to feel this way about you. Christ has set his affections on you. So it is right for me too to set my affections upon you. And then verse eight, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more He is filled with a yearning for them all, a longing for them. Later on in chapter four, verse one, he says, he he tells them that they are those whom I love and long for. A yearning, a longing rooted in the affections of Jesus for them. And he's praying, he's praying that they too would. Would know the love of Christ and live in light of the love of Christ as they turn to love one another. We do this at Christmas time so well. And don't you just feel that? There's just like this aroma of thankfulness and joy and gathering with one another and a willingness to gather, a love to move towards one another. We write cards expressing affection to one another. We purpose to gather and open our homes to one another. We invite others into our lives. We are quick to express thankfulness. We lovingly and gladly participate in the church gathering. There's an excitement and a joy, yearning and longing to be together. There seems to be just a little more bandwidth of grace to bear with one another. And though December is is coming to a close, saints, and all the Christmas cheer in the city In a sense, has seemed to dry up. That's not true for the Christian. Christ and His affections for His people has not dried up. Christ, we have our being fellow recipients of His grace has not ceased. That still is our identity, fellow recipients of grace. It has not changed, and so let us continue to continue this type of grace saturated, Christ oriented loving thankfulness for one another. And as our brother Paul prayed for the church that their love would abound more and more, may we ask God. May we ask God who can powerfully work in our hearts. May we ask God to do the same powerful work in us. And church, these are things that you already do so well. And I think the appeal as pastors and as shepherds is to look ahead and to say, we don't want to slip. We don't want to slip. That's when we start moving away from the gospel. We say we're going to move on to other things. No, we've got to keep pressing on in these things. Saying, oh no, it's, Christ is still reigning. It's still Christmas for the Christian. And so, how do we live this type of love and thankfulness out? I think the Lord, as as we move ahead, is going to challenge what we're placing our joy and affection in when we don't get our way. When we're, Maybe a brother or sister may sin against us. The Lord is going to allow that time to confront our grace-driven motivations, giving undeserved love to those who maybe don't deserve it, a thankful heart. The Lord's going to allow moments to grow us in this, to be thankful for each other, to be thankful for what he's bringing us through. May the Lord continue his good work, filling us with a loving thankfulness. Second, may we live with a faith in God's faithfulness. Such a key part of our Christmas joy is in the incarnation. Christ Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We actually just spent all of December in just recognizing that truth in Psalm 23, and we were filled with a comfort in knowing that he is Always with us. He is Emmanuel. He is the good shepherd. Emmanuel with us. He is always leading, always directing, always caring, always pursuing, always working in us and around us as he shepherds us as his sheep and as Emmanuel. God, God with us. And so then, in light of this very truth, Paul can live with an unrelenting affection for this imperfect church because... He himself is confident in the unrelenting faithfulness of God at work in the church. He has a faith in God's faithfulness. Our Savior who came and dwelt among us, though though he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has not left us. He gave his Holy Spirit to us, and so he is with us, and he continues to powerfully work in us and through us. That truth enables Paul not to shy away from being honest about where they need to grow. Paul is incredibly honest in his letters. He's incredibly honest, but it's not to blast people. And you notice that's not where he started, right? He started by highlighting grace and his affection for them. But it does free us to be graciously and mercifully honest with each other when we recognize that God is at work here. God is present and at work in one another's lives. And so our honesty has an aroma of faith and hope that the Lord is doing good work in you already. Here's something to consider. Here's something to be aware of. And then you can walk away trusting the Lord that the Lord is still at work. That changes the way we encounter one another. It changes the way when we walk through a little bit of rocky times with each other. That's what a family does. When there is a faith in God's faithfulness, it enables us to patiently and gently bear with one another's imperfections. He says this in chapter one, verse six, and I am sure of this. Listen to the confidence in him, this hope, this this, there's this faith that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to that. Chapter two, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And why and how do we do that? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So should we even notice a hint of a need of growth? It is because God is is willing and working inside of us and we can trust that. Should we encounter a brother or sister who is in need of growth and who is aware of it? We can encourage them. God is at work there already. You're aware of it. And he's going to finish that work. He's going to keep working in you. He's not going to stop working in you. Chapter 3, verse 15. I love this because Paul's talking about running the race, running, striving, pursuing Christ because Christ has pursued me. We run hard saying, I want you, Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. But listen to this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Do you hear the faith that Paul has in God's faithfulness to work in his people? You may not see it now. Now. But I'm trusting that at some point you will see it. God will work there. As a pastor, I think I've shared this with you many times. That is like the big truth that pastors have to cling to. And counseling moments and care moments when you're pursuing a, a little sheep of a, of a church member who's maybe running the wrong way and you're you're correcting you're you're telling them you can't keep going that way or there's this area of your life, brother, you just be aware of or sister, and and sometimes they don't always respond well. And there have been very painful heart points in my life where there have been tears, hanging up a phone. And the, the thing that has brought me comfort is this very truth. Lord, I can release them knowing you will never release. Knowing you are faithful to work. Knowing you are faithful to complete the good work you began. And should they think otherwise, oh, God will reveal that also to you. Saints, I I, Pastor Rob. We, we, we live with this hope in the Lord of his faithfulness. And we want you to live that way with one another as well. And I think you do. All these things, this is not a corrective sermon. This is more like, I just want to keep stirring you on in this. I see you do this all the time. I see you encourage one another all the time. I see you bear with one another all the time. Keep doing it. And the way you're going to bear with one another is by having faith in God's faithfulness to be at work in one another. Amen. That's it. That's it there. Third, may we live with a humility that considers others. Chapter two, verses three through four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is something we especially, even in society, tend to purpose ourselves in during the Christmas season, to consider others, to recognize and help those in need. And so what do you see? You see uh, there, there are bell ringers who are ringing bells, give to those in need, give. But what happens when Christmas is done? The bell ringing stops in a sense. And you're like, well, let's keep doing it year round. Everybody needs to, we, there's always need. Let's just keep doing this year round. For the Christian life, that's what we recognize. This is a year-round, day-in, day-out posture of life because that's how Jesus lived. That's how our Savior lived. The call is this ongoing way of life. Paul, you'll recognize those verses are directly connected to what we read earlier at the start of the sermon. He connects that humility, our pursuit of humility, Our pursuit of laying down our lives for one another. Our pursuit of counting others more significant than ourselves. The literal translation of that is counting others more valuable. How often, (laughs) I'll tell you, when I read that, that presses up against me. And I'm sure it presses up against you. Do I count others more valuable than me? Their time more valuable than my time. Their energy more valuable than my energy. Their efforts more valuable. They themselves more valuable than I am. Well, when you value something, when you consider it valuable, you you care for it, don't you? You tend to it. Danielle has these beautiful, this crystal, uh, uh, like, Vase things that's been given to her from her grandma. She has this silverware stuff that's been given to her, and you can tell. For me, it's like, all right, where do you want to put this? You know, like you put it in the garage, where you want to put, where you want to put this. But for her, it's valuable. It's valuable. So no, we're going to display it. We're going to clean it up. We're going to make sure we're going to help wash it. We're going to where it's tarnished, we're going to tend to it. Where it's cracked and broken, we're going to care for it, and I'm going to display it for all to see. That's the call of caring and tending with humility towards one another, considering one another more valuable than even ourselves. And Paul connects that to the gospel. The very next verses are have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who treated you the very same way. Isn't that amazing? The king of the universe laid down his life, as if you were valuable to him, that blows me away. Especially for someone who wrestles with value of myself. When I think of that, that Christ would humble himself and serve a sinner like me and consider me valuable to give his life. He would love me and pursue salvation for me, that I could know him and treasure him and find joy in him. That blows me away. Oh, church, may it affect the way we live. We are called to follow Christ's example of humbly laying down our life for the life of others. It is the great temptation and the natural impulse of our heart to want to exalt ourselves. To want to be noticed among everybody, even in the church. To want to be noticed among one another. To want to get my way. the great temptation of our hearts and saints. When Christmas comes around, we just seem to serve. We, we lean towards considering others more highly. In church, as we follow Christ and as we continue to fix our eyes on the gospel and the life of Christ continues to infuse how we live, oh, it's a life of just over and over again. It's this life of mutually lowering ourselves before one another. And can you imagine... Because here's what often happens. <laughs> it, well, can you imagine a church where there's a striving not to be known among one another? Where there's a, there, not a striving, I just want my idea to be heard. I just want to rule this thing. But a church where there's a mutual striving of humility? Humility? A mutual striving, church, I don't even know if you can see me. A mutual striving of this posture. A mutual striving of coming to one another and saying, I just want to serve you. I'm just glad to be in the room no matter where I've come from, no matter matter my social status. All I know is that once I was a sinner and a slave to sin, and I've been rescued by Christ, by the servant of all servants and king of kings, I'm to follow him, and so this is my posture as I walk into the the room. Oh, church, it is my desire that as pastors that that would continue to be our posture. We're not perfect, but that we would serve in that way. But it's not just pastors doing that. Everyone mutually saying, I'm considering you more highly than myself. Can you imagine the care and the love and the bearing with one another This explosion, like Christmas lights at night, this explosion of the beauty of Christ in the church, not by way of exalting ourselves, but exaltation by the way of humiliation. Isn't that what we're called to? Exaltation by way of humiliation. And we never move on from that. Last, may we live with a joy in knowing Christ and making Christ known. May that be our central joy. There are things that will come crashing into our hearts and into our lives and, and, and on Sunday mornings. You can imagine these poor guys, Markel, Josh, they've practiced, they've worked hard, and then the guitar doesn't work. Randomly. All of a sudden, there, there's these moments like that that come crashing into our hearts and our lives that are going are to say, what are you putting your joy in? Is it that? Because if it's that, when it goes out, when it goes kaput, and all of a sudden you turn it on and it's fuzzy, your joy is gone. It's shot. The gladness of your heart leaves the room. What are we putting our joy in? When Christmas comes, there's there's just is this sense, at least in, in our home, we strive for this. We are going to fix our eyes on Christ. We are going to read about him. We're going to sing about him. We're going to just keep talking about how the best gift is Christ, our gift. We're going to pursue him. And on Sundays, we, we're singing to him. We're rehearsing these wonderful truths. And we're pursuing joy in knowing Christ. And we never move on from that, church. And there are going to be things God is going to allow to bubble up to say, What are you putting your joy in? Is it me? Is it your savior or is it in a relationship and you don't have it and so your joy is crushed? Or is it your health? Your health isn't working right. Church, I am, that's me a lot of times. And, and I'm so silly because then I start noticing things with my teeth and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, there's more health things. Well, what if this happens with my teeth? What if, what if this and all of a sudden my joy is being rocked? What are you putting your joy in? Listen to Paul. Chapter four, verse four. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul things. Paul is writing that in the middle of those verses. He's writing to two Christians who are disagreeing with one another, who are not getting along. And so it's almost him saying, your joy right now is in trying to win an argument. Rejoice in the Lord always. Make your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction, the pleasure of your heart not winning the argument. Make it Put it in Jesus. Let Him be your satisfaction. He has accepted you. He has received you. And so you don't have to fight to be received and accepted by those around you. You don't have to win the argument. Rejoice in the Lord always. So that's one. Two, He's writing those words as He Himself is in jail. He's writing the letter to the Philippians in jail. He doesn't know if He's going to die. He in chapter two, he's saying that I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. Where was his joy? He says, I rejoice. So in ch- chapter one, the end of 18, this isn't on the screen, Hesed, I'm sorry. Yes, I will rejoice. And why? Because whether I live or I die, I'm Christ. If I die, I'm with my Savior. If I live, I will serve my Savior because He is my joy. And so I can face death with this gladness of heart. That is just otherworldly. I can face death with a gladness of heart because Christ is my joy. He's in jail. could be facing death. He has no idea what's going to happen to Him. You find out reading the letter that there are people who are, they're proclaiming Christ while he's in jail, but they're doing it almost to afflict Paul. They're doing it in a way to almost demean Paul, to to undermine his, his ministry. And so there are relationship problems. You imagine how when you're slandered, people say things about you, man, that rocks my joy. Oh my goodness, when I think people may think wrongly of me, it keeps me up at night. Because I think I tend to put my joy in what people think of me. So here are people who are... Slandering Paul, he's in jail. And what does he say? What does he say in chapter one, verse 12 and 18? He says, he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he ends that section saying, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. His joy was in knowing Christ. He says, he says in another place, he counts everything else as rubbish for knowing the worth of knowing Christ. His joy is in knowing Christ and making Christ known. Church, I've said it from day one. Day one. It is so tempting to want to be impressive, to want to draw people. Let's just be impressive. What can we draw people with? Because we live in that kind of world. You got to be impressive. So we put our joy in all these other things. Or we just got we got to have all these ministries and we put our, we get to put our joy in oh, we got this ministry and we got this and we can do this and and oh, we're just we're really cool. And so so now I'm, I, I'm just I'm I'm putting I'm banking all of my life joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and just being received and all this kind of we can just put it in everything else. And I I just feel as a pastor, I just want to keep fighting in my personal life, but for you as well, let's be a church who simply just finds joy in being known by our Savior, who finds joy as we read those first six verses, chapter two, verses five through 11, then we say, wow, thank you, Jesus. You are my joy. What does it look like to be a church who's not... Constantly striving to be known in all those ways. We want Christ to be known. What does that look like? For our personal lives as we live that out even. With joy. It's a joy, too, that's not. I say this all the time. It's the joy that's not, it's not a it's not just a bubbly joy. It may play itself out in a happy, bubbly joy at times. But it's this. It's this gladness of heart that anchors the soul even in the midst of really difficult things. It's a joy that is greater than difficult circumstances, a joy that walks with us in the midst of difficulty and difficult circumstances. Brian Tabb, he's an author, an, athletic, or an academic dean at Bethlehem College Center, he says this about joy. I think it's, he sums it up really well rejoicing in the Lord means knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, Savior, and treasure. It means He gives us deeper, purer, sweeter, more lasting pleasure and gladness than anything this world has to offer. As Paul says in Philippians 38, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord means that there is a new song in our hearts, the song of the redeemed, that, in, that the din and distresses of life cannot drown out. He is the chief object of our joy. Therefore, Christian joy is the great pleasure and happiness that we feel, whether or not the sun is shining, whether or not our team is winning, whether or not we are healthy or hurting, because our Redeemer lives, because we belong to him, and because he is making all things new. That is the joy Paul is declaring for us to have. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Church, may that joy be our joy, be our central joy, the motivation of our joy, the core of our joy, the fuel of our joy. May it be in knowing Christ, in making Christ know. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.